Well, good morning, everyone. We're continuing in our discussion. I think we're on lesson 16 or 17, something like that. But you're going to see this morning that the notes are very much like, maybe very much last week's, maybe with a couple of additions to them. And it says lesson 15. So <clears throat> I don't know if it matters that much. But we're continuing with our discussion of the revelation of Christ. Remember, we first did the revelation of Christ in the tabernacle and the priesthood and all the functions, the construction, all the issues about the tabernacle and the sacrificial system. We discussed the revelation that Jesus Christ is being manifested or at least partially typed or foreshadowed in all of those events in the Old Testament. God telling us that I am moving toward a time from the fall of Adam in Genesis 3, 6. Remember, and he ate, particularly the fruit, forbidden fruit. God is moving forward from that point, that point of rebellion where mankind fell because of disobedience, toward the place of fulfilling and completely restoring his people to his original purpose. Where is his original purpose stated? God's purpose for humanity, God's purpose for his people is clearly stated where? In one sentence, in one comment, in one affirmation. Where is that? In Genesis 1, 26. Now, please remember that. That is the single most significant statement from God about humanity. Anything and everything about who we are, why we are, where we are, where are we going to be? What's happening? Why is God doing what he's going to, is doing, etc.? Everything about us is contained within that one verse. Let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. And you remember, man rebelled against that. Adam and Eve were to be the first of a hundreds and thousands of people who would be God's people upon the earth, imaging God so that the community of humanity upon the earth would be living in such righteousness, such obedience, such loving one another in such a way that the community on earth would be clearly reflecting, honestly, correctly, and truthfully reflecting, continually reflecting the community of God in heaven. Adam fell. Everything was plunged into sin. And so God began immediately to move forward to restore his original purpose, to make sure that what he began, he will complete. And so throughout the Old Testament, there is a move of God through people, through commands, through circumstances, through uh, religious activities, all of which is saying this, my son is coming, the redeemer is coming, the anointed, the holy one, the Messiah, which is in the Greek Christos, the Christ is coming. And he himself, in himself and by himself, will fully, completely, forever restore God's people to God's originally intention and bring all of God's people into God's presence and to God's, as God's family before him 
in a new heaven and a new earth as we see in Revelation 21 and 22. And so where do we get the authority to say all of this is a type of Christ? Is foreshadowing the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Where is the authority? Well, the authority is in a couple of different places, but the best authority is in Luke 22, verses 27 and 44, where Jesus is expounding what has been happening to these two disciples, you remember, who have left Jerusalem downcast because they, the Messiah, we thought we had hope. We, we were thinking, we were anticipating, and it's gone because he is dead. And Jesus, the Bible says, beginning with Matthew and the prophets, the Psalms, throughout the entire Old Testament. Can you imagine what kind of Bible study that was? And there were just three people there. And nobody saved it. You're right. It wasn't recorded. And Jesus expounded to them how all of it was a fulfillment of himself. So this morning we're continuing with the feasts. The seven Levitical feasts as recorded chronologically in Leviticus 23. I know I've gone over some of this, but I think had I given us a quick test this morning on some of this, many of us would not have done well. So let's hang on as I go back through it. And so the three Levitical, I'm sorry, the seven Levitical festivals, seven feasts, seven festivals, seven opportunities and really commands to assemble before God, to come before God. God gives these people. What are they all about? Why does God do it? Again, God does it for their immediate need of being in his presence and receiving from him what they need. He does it for their immediate need. But he also does it to anticipate and to describe what he's going to do in the history of humanity concerning his redemptive plan for all humanity and especially the church. And so as we look at these feasts, we found, remember, that they are divided into two major sections. The first section is called the what feast? Spring. Spring. Spring feast. The second section is called the what? Fall feast. In the spring feast, there are four festivals. The first three come one, two, three, right after one another. And then there is a 50-day span until the fourth feast, which is called Pentecost. And then after the fourth feast, there is a several-month delay until the initiation of the third set of three feasts, which begin in the month of Tishri or the seventh month, which we'll get into next time. And so the Lord says to his people, I want all the males, all my people, all the heads of all the households. That doesn't mean the women are excluded, but I want the men to be sure to come before me, to assemble before me in Jerusalem. And I want them to do it three times a year. I want them to do it in commemoration of the first three feasts. I want them to do it at the commemoration of that fourth feast. And I want them to come before me in commemoration of the last three feasts. Why? Why was this so significant to God? Because you see, the first three feasts represent and foreshadow and are a down payment that guarantees <clears throat> that the first advent of Christ, you know what advent means, appearing, the first coming. The first advent of Christ is 
pictured in the first three feasts, that first advent where Jesus purchases the church. The third or the fourth feast or the second time to assemble, remember the first three assemble, then the fourth assemble, is Pentecost. What is the significance of that? It is then, now that the church has been what? Birth or purchase in Pentecost, the church is birthed. The church has been purchased in the first three. The church is now birthed in Pentecost. And then in the last three, the church is gathered before God to celebrate forever. So what is God saying? These three assembling times a year commemorate and celebrate and anticipate the fullness of all the work that I will do in my people and for my people. So that's why they were to gather. So last week, remember we talked about the Passover. And very quickly, I'll just add this. And we should know by now what the Passover is. Remember, when did the Passover begin? On the 14th of the first month of the year, Nisan, N-I-S-A-N. On the 10th of the month, the lamb was brought into the household. For four days, the lamb was inspected for no fault or no defect. And then at the beginning of the 14th day, now when does a day begin for Jewish reckoning? The day begins at twilight or dusk. Remember, these are 30-day months, lunar months. We don't have the solar calendar for Israel. And so at the beginning of the day, of the 14th day, the lamb is slaughtered. Remember, and the blood is put on the doorpost. Everyone eats the lamb, you remember. When did Jesus enter Jerusalem for the last time? Well, the Gospel of John tells us. He enters on this first day of the week. And he remains among the people and in the tabernacle and in and out. And during that four-day time period, he is being scrutinized by the religious officials. Back and forth discussion. And what about this? What about that? What are you doing here? What does that mean? Why did you do that? Who gave you that authority? Who are you? Why are you? He is being scrutinized by the religious officials, the priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees. Why? Because you see, God gave to the priests, to the religious leaders and the heads of the households, those who were had the responsibility of leadership to inspect the lamb for those four days to make sure that that lamb was appropriate for the sacrifice of the Passover. And this is what was happening in the life of Jesus, although the Pharisees and the Sadducees didn't even understand what they were doing. All they knew is they were trying to expose this rabble-rouser. And so at the end of it, Jesus was found not guilty. He was found innocent, morally Innocent religiously and innocent, innocent civilly. You know, with the, the, the authority, Pilate says what? Remember, Pilate says what? I find no fault in him. He'd broken no laws of man. He'd broken no laws of God. He was the perfect lamb. And so how was this festival fulfilled? Colossians 2.17. At the cross, Jesus took to himself all of the guilt of our sin and put that guilt, that punishment, that wrath of God that was due to us, he put it to death 
even suffering death on the cross. Therefore, Jesus' death was not only death's death, it was our death that was due us because of the wages of sin is death. And death there means the wrath of God upon sin within the un unbeliever. So what is 2 Corinthians 5, 21? Very important verse. For our sake, God made Christ to be sin, to be the sin bearer, to be the one who is judicially declared as a sinner, not to be literally becoming sinful. Kenneth Copeland has it wrong. Jesus himself does not become a literal sinner. That is blasphemy. He ever remains the innocent Son of God, the Son of Man, Jesus himself, ever remains the unswerving without any sin committed in him, Son of Man. But he is judicially declared as being sinful. Why? Because he takes it to himself. And in doing so, he pays our price. Now, what is the benefit of that to us? Because God declared his own son in the flesh as judicially sinful. And because God, the son in the flesh, paid the full forever and final price for all our sin in his suffering and death. What does that mean for us? That because of that, in his resurrection... God accepts and exonerates his son as not having been guilty personally of sin and also establishes and announces that the people for whom God, Jesus died, the people in whom Jesus, whom Jesus carried in himself to the cross, that those people also will be declared as not guilty, not without sin, but not guilty, meaning punishment has been assuaged, has been put away. We're never innocent. We're always not guilty. Even in heaven, we'll never be innocent. We're just not guilty. There's only ever been, ever will be one innocent man. Remember that. And as a result of that, God's legal declaration that Jesus was a sinner, was punished because of that. We were in him, Galatians 2.20, our sin being punished. Therefore, in the resurrection, God now declares us as not guilty. And so he makes a declaration about us that our sin is paid for, therefore we're not guilty. And as a result of not being guilty, it's called being justified, Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Now we can become adopted, and we will be adopted, and we are adopted as God's forever children. Amen? That's what Pentecost is all about. But it's the precursor of the next three. Okay, any questions about that? Thank you. No questions. Let's talk about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I'm, I'm, you don't know this, but I'm racing through this. It may not seem to you, but, you know, Leviticus 23, verse 6. Now, first of all, the 14th of Nisan at twilight is the beginning of the day. That's when Pentecost begins. 
the Jewish day begins when? Sundown or dusk. So look at this, 23.6 of Leviticus. On the 15th day of that month, what time? In the beginning of the 15th day, what time is that? At dusk. It's not 6 o'clock in the morning like we think. When the sun comes up, the day begins. It's when the sun goes down, the day begins for the Jewish people. On the 15th, which is what? The next day after Pentecost. On the 15th day of that month, the Lord's Feast of Unleavened Bread begins. Seven days you must eat bread made without yeast. And so the Feast of Unleavened Bread begins on the 15th and ends on the 21st. 21st. It goes for those days. Now this feast that is so closely associated with Passover, and I said this last week, is in biblical terms associated and termed the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So sometimes in the New Testament you'll see the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Sometimes you'll see it says Passover. It's the same feast. So for the first and the seventh days of the feast, the first and the seventh days of this feast, and you'll see that in Leviticus 23, 7 to 8, were special Sabbaths. Now, I think I mentioned this before. The Sabbath is what? The last day of the week. Remember that? Six days, creation, the seventh God rested. I think we talked about this last week, didn't we? Man was created to live in the eternal seventh rest of God, the seventh day. Those every week, there was a Sabbath, beginning at sundown to the next sundown. But with the feast, there are special Sabbaths. Each feast is begun called a day of commemoration or a holy assembly or a holy convocation. The beginning day of every feast is a special Sabbath. Why do I say special? Because sometimes it will fall because of the date and the timing of the moon and so on. Sometimes it will fall on a Friday, sometimes on another day, sometimes even on a Saturday. So when we read the Bible and it says Sabbath concerning these feasts, that doesn't automatically mean it's a Saturday. It just means it's the seventh, I'm sorry, a special Sabbath beginning or commemorating or inaugurating the beginning of that particular festival. And so the first and the seventh days of the feast were special Sabbaths. On the first day, there, there was a holy or a sacred Sabbath assembly. And the Bible says this in Leviticus 23, 7 and 8. On the first day, talking about the Feast of uh, Unleavened Bread, hold a sacred assembly. That's a Sabbath assembly. And do not do any regular work. For seven days present an offering made to the Lord by fire. And on the seventh day, Remember of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. A sacred Sabbath assembly is to be held another time to do no work. Now, why is unleavened bread prohibited? It says, you shall have no leaven. In fact, the Lord says, if there's leaven in any of your bread during this celebration, you will be disconnected from Israel. This is a strong prohibition. Put no leaven in the bread. You remember what leaven is. It's that stuff that you put in the bread and it ferments and it bubbles up and the bread becomes a little flat thing into, you know, kind of the nice loaf of bread that we think of today. This requirement was crucial. It was crucial to the celebration of this feast. Put no leaven. No leaven. In fact, the tradition began and continues even maybe to this day in many Jewish Orthodox or Hasidic homes, whatever, that the lady of the house sweeps the entire house 
as it were, of leaven. Gets rid of all the leaven everywhere that she can. So leaven is a crucial requirement. No leaven is a crucial requirement for this particular uh, festival. Why? What's the significance of no leaven? Well, in the Bible, le leaven represents something. It represents sin. It represents error. It represents evil. That's what God is meaning by no leaven. So this is what Jesus meant. Remember in Matthew 7, 16, 6, Jesus said to them, watch out and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What does that mean? The leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. What that means is this, that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the men who were to be teachers of the law. They were to be representatives of the content and the meaning and the power of God's law, of God's word. This is who they were supposed to be. But what was happening is that they were adding man's tradition. They were adding other non-God-ordained works into the law. They were adding to the law that which God had not given them, that which they had come up with for whatever, even good reasons. A lot of these re, uh, additions to the law were good in their minds, trying to help the people. How can we help the people to be obedient to the law? Well, what we need to do is, we're supposed, how to not, if, if the Lord says don't do any work on the Sabbath, what does that mean? Well, what it means is, this is how many steps you can take. This is how far you can go. This is what it means. And so they were adding to the law, not to tear down or destroy the purpose of God, but they were doing it in order in their minds to help the people to be held accountable and to be obedient. But even though they may have done this with good motivation, they added that which the Lord did not give them. And when you do that, Jesus says you're adding leaven, you're adding fermentation, you're causing putrefaction or deterioration or rotting to the loaf or to the word that you're giving. And so leaven represented putrefaction, you know, to decay, to ferment. Remember, fermentation is that little, somebody medically in here, what is it, those little, uh, what do you call it? Uh, what does it say it again? Yeah, but putrefaction is germs or whatever it all is. Or I'm, what? Say it again? Gangrene or whatever it is. Okay, there it is. So it's gangrene. This is what the Apostle Paul also talked about in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, and 8. Listen, he says, he's talking to the church. He's talking to us about our own activities. He says, cleanse out the old leaven. What does that mean? You are forgiven of all the leaven. You're forgiven. And But as you walk on a daily basis, as you live life, you're going to find that leaven pops up all over the place in your life. And where you see leaven popping up in your life, whether it's in your own um, way you deal with your own thoughts, whether it's the way you deal with other people, whether it's your political persuasion, whether it's the way you do work, whatever it is, where you seen, see leaven in your life, here's what Paul says to do. He says, Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. He says, in God's sight, you have been made an unleavened lump. 
You didn't know you were lumps, did you? And so don't live anymore like as if you are a leaven lump. Begin to live according to the reality and the truth of your position in Christ. Begin to live that way. This is, and rightly so, a big emphasis for Frank Loria. Live your identity. If you ever listen to Frank, his middle name is identity. And so he says, live your identity. It's true. Live out what God has done. He says, cleanse the loaf. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the old ways, the old ceremonies, the old sin, the old life, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. And so sin, you see, unchecked, will permeate the entire loaf of the body. We are one loaf, if, it, if you would, the one loaf of Jesus Christ, the body of Christ. He is the bread of life. We are the loaf of Christ. Because unleavened was a... Leaven, sorry, was a corrupting agent causing fermentation, polluting the purity of the bread. Now, you understand what leaven is. Now, what is, what is the significance of no leaven to do with the sinless body of Christ? What is the issue here? What is the issue? Remember Jesus said in John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. I am the bread of life. You see, and as the bread of life, Jesus is God's provision for our sin. Remember this? And you're going to hear it in the sermon this morning from Evan. John 6, Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. Remember the manna that came down. He'll talk about that today from Exodus 16. But my father gives you the true bread from heaven. That manna was a representation of God feeding you by the spirit of the life that I give to you. For the bread of God is he, the Messiah, who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. Hey, it's like the flowing living water. Remember in John 4, living water, you mean flowing everlasting water that I don't have to come to this well every day? I want this kind of water. What was Jesus talking about? The water that is ever flowing from God. It is that life-giving stream of God. And they said to him, give us this bread. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. But you see, in order for this bread to be life to us, it must be leaven-free. This must be unleavened bread. This is the kind of bread that God is talking about. It must be without sin that would cause it to be corrupted, to lose its purity. So what does, if Jesus is the bread of life, and since Jesus is the bread of life, what is the requirement in him? That there be no sin in him. That he is a human being, as we see in Hebrews, in order to take our sin as a man to the cross. As Adam sinned as a man, Jesus now must not sin as a man to represent us. And so if Jesus is the bread of life, there, need, there cannot be any, what, leaven or sin in him. So where do we see that he was tempted in all ways such as we accept without sin? Where do we see that? In Hebrews 4.15, remember, there is no sin in him. How do we know? Because, again, at the trial, Jesus was found religiously innocent. Right? He was religiously innocent, and he was civilly innocent. Pilate says, I find no fault in this man. 
he was declared innocent. He himself was without leaven. Also, God had promised that he would not allow his Holy One, the Messiah, to see corruption. Remember, leaven is the agent of corruption. Psalm 1610, this meant that God had promised that he would not allow the body of the Messiah to decay. This is why Jesus rose on the third day. Why? Because putrefaction and decay had not yet begun. The physical body of Jesus did not decay. It did not see or experience corruption. It did not undergo the natural putrefaction. Jesus, what happened then? It's not that his body decayed away in some kind of way, another body, and Jesus kind of did something different. This feast pictured the fulfillment of that promise. When Jesus died, God raised and transformed his earthly body into a spiritual body at the beginning of the third day. When does the third day begin? At the dusking. At the dusking. And when you read the Bible, it's interesting that the Bible says, and the women came to the tomb very early in the beginning of the day, and it was still dark. Read the Bible in reference to the way the Jews would have understood this, not Western Americans understand it. Although Jesus was personally innocent of any sin, he had taken to himself, remember, our sin. He had embraced our sin at the cross. And as a result, his body would have decayed. But God intervened by transforming and raising the body of his son so that Jesus' body did not experience the natural decay that it should have as a result of taking on our sin. So the body of Jesus is in the tomb being wrapped, you remember, in the cloths. And at the beginning of this new day, by the power of God, God took that body and literally transformed that body that Jesus had on this earth. Not a different body, but that body itself and transformed it from a natural body from a body that was subject to the natural issues of life. He got tired, he had to drink, he had to take a nap. Remember this? To a body that was no longer subject to the natural, he raised him with a new body called his spiritual body. This is what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they have? Now, I don't want to excite you or disappoint you. But every one of us who have a body today, anybody in here not have a body? Everybody's living in something. <laughs> You're not getting something that looks radically different. Mm. I believe your body is going to, you're going to look like you look like now. Now, there may be, maybe there are a few little differences. Some of the lumps and bumps and the natural deformities of the body will be gone. 
So if you have a big old something on your face that's festering, well, that's going to be gone. The bald heads will be gone. <laughs> the bad backs will be gone. There will be no more any need for dyeing of hair or makeup. Hey, 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 think of that. The women are going to be beautiful without all the cosmetics. The men are going to be handsome without all the props that we have. We're not getting a body that is absolutely a Brad Pitt or what is his wife's name? Jolie body. No. We're getting this body that we have to be transformed into a new spiritual body without any natural contamination or any issues of that sort at all. <laughs> Some of you look very disappointed at this. <laughs> wow. Oh, well, I was hoping for something better than this nose and these ears and whatever, you know, and I'm hoping to be a little tall and a little whatever. Paul says, what kind of a body? He says, you foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel perhaps of wheat or of some earth or other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen into each kind of its seed, each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. Now, Paul is not speaking physiologically here. There are several heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for stars differ from stars in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown in a, <coughs> me, a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man became a living being, the last Adam, that's Christ, became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And was the, as was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have been born the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. The heavenly man. So why could Jesus in this resurrected body appear and disappear? Why could he walk through walls? Why could he, why was he not subject to the natural any longer? Because you see, he was of another dimension, but his body was a genuine body, but differently composed. Remember, Mary recognized him. He was in the garden, remember in John chapter, what is it? 20th of the resurrection and Mary is looking for the body of Jesus she's distraught and there's someone over here who's working or doing something or standing there and she goes up to him she says she thinks he's the what the gardener 
If you know where the body is, tell me. Tell me. I've got to know where the body is. We have to take care. We have to continue the spicing. We have to continue the anointing. So, you know, we have to do that which is necessary by law because we had to stick him in the tomb real fast and do some quick things. But now the Sabbath is over. The, the, you know, the, 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 uh, the festival is over. We need to get back into this. Show me where the body is. Because remember, the tomb was open. And Jesus turned and he said what? Mary. She recognized his voice, whether she recognized it only, not only verbally but spiritually, she recognized him. And she spoke to him. She said, man, you don't look like anything I remember. When he appeared to the disciples, there was no discussion. It's good night, James. How you have changed. And in fact, his body still has and will only be the only body in heaven which will have the natural, what? Scars. He has a scar on his wrist, each wrist. He has a scar in his side. And he has scars in his feet. Ever reminders, we are there on the basis of another man. Amen? That's why we're there. Always a reminder of that. Maybe even in heaven we need that kind of humility. I don't know. But he had a different body. That's what unleavened bread is all about. It says to us that the lamb that died on Passover, that God will not allow his lamb who has suffered death, his body to what? decay or putrefy you see in the festival of unleavened bread there is a promise that this Messiah is going to die Passover but this Messiah's death will not be final that he's coming back and so next week we'll look at the festival of first what fruits the wave offering that's the festival that announces his return from the grave. So we'll look at that one, then we'll get into Pentecost, and we'll get into the fall festivals. So all of this over the next few weeks, and we'll be finished. Thank you for coming.